0: This time on the Out of Water Podcast, we're bringing you part of a message from Pastor Sam Kastensmith in his series, The Miracle Behind the Miracles. In this episode, Sam will discuss a few stunning miracles that highlight God's desire to dwell intimately with His people. Ultimately, these miracles were intended to point us to the death and resurrection of Jesus, who has made it possible for God to dwell in the hearts of His people. If you belong to Christ, then you are now a temple of God. Let's go to the Ingram Center Theater at Rio Vista Community Church and Pastor Sam Kastensmith.
1: All right, a couple of things before we start, just as kind of recapping what miracles are, what they aren't. So what a miracle is, we've talked about this, that a miracle is an invasion of heaven coming down into the earth. And miracles are not when we think of them, they're not a, a deviation from the natural order. They're a deviation from the fallen natural order. But they are a restoration of what God had originally intended. Right? Death, disease, all those things were not originally intended. And so when we see a miracle that overthrows that, what we're seeing is a restoration of God's natural design. Not an intervention, right? And so that's the hope. We're going toward a world that miracles give us the slightest little taste of. Another thing that we talked about is God never does miracles as a parlor trick. We're going to talk about some of the miracles uh, that Jesus does where you're like, that seemed harsh or really petty. Uh, And if you don't know the reason behind why he's doing it, it seems that way, but we're going to talk about those. So Jesus never does parlor tricks, Jesus never does purely self-serving miracles. They always, always, always point to his gospel, his glory, and they're for the benefit of his people. There is, in our culture, in our society, this allergy to the notion of something supernatural. We're, We're averse to thinking that the supernatural is real, that miracles really happen. We want to explain them away, and so we always come to the miracles going, how, and what, and when, and... The most important question that the Bible's calling you to, though, is not those things. It is, why? When you ask the why of these biblical miracles, all of a sudden the gospel shines through, and then you go, oh my goodness, this is God. Like, if his central passion is your redemption, then you see the gospel all over these miracles, the gospel message behind these miracles, and then the the how doesn't seem so important. And so we're going to start with a very famous miracle, and one that non-believers look at and go, what in the world is that about? Jonah. What, what is the story of Jonah about? So God calls him to go preach to the Ninevites and he doesn't want to do it. And Nineveh was the capital of Assyria in the ancient world. And so when God says to Jonah, I want you to pick up and I want you to go to Nineveh where you're going to preach the gospel, I want these people to turn. I want them to become my people. Jonah's going, no, I absolutely refuse. I will not go. I'm getting on a boat, and I'm going in the opposite direction in the Mediterranean Sea from where Assyria is. I, have, I want nothing to do with this. Here's the truth about the Assyrian people. They were nasty butchers, known for like incredible cruelty. They were the first terrorists of the world where they came in and they did things to provoke this intense terror in everybody that they conquered. And when I say that, I'm going to share like a little bit. They would find pregnant women, and if you were near full term, they would cut your belly open, take your baby out, kill your baby in front of you while you bled to death. Their artwork of what they celebrated is, you see up here, Here's the Assyrian people that are taking chains and those that they capture with large fish hooks, yanking them through their cheeks or their nose and hooking those hooks to the next person, to the next person, to the next person, and you'd grab the chain and you say, come with me, because guess what? If you tried to run, and everybody that you were tied to, cutting off limbs of their victims, they used to cut off heads stack them up, and have archery practice. They would store up the beheaded heads of their enemies as trophies. God comes to Jonah and says, I want them. How do you feel about that? These videos, and I haven't watched them, but I can imagine them, and I've heard them described of ISIS putting people in cages and drowning them and doing unspeakable things to them. God says, I want them. Ooh, no. No no way. I'm getting on a boat. I'm going in the other direction. And Jonah's angry that God is merciful. He even says that in the book, like, I knew it. Your your loving kindness is so extreme, like, this annoys me. And if you look at the history, where I want you to know is where, where Jonah lands in history. If you go to between 700 and 800 years before Christ, The kingdom had split. You had northern ten tribes were Israel. The southern two tribes were Judah. And you notice where the prophet Jonah is? A short time after Jonah goes to Nineveh, all the northern ten tribes are conquered. All the northern ten tribes are going to undergo that cruelty we just talked about. The Assyrians are going to conquer the northern tribes. And you say, well, Jonah was right. No. No let's read the story. So Jonah's told to go, and he says, no, he gets on a ship, and he's going the opposite direction. And we're told in Jonah chapter one, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Now, if you were here for session one, what immediately are you thinking? A great ruach upon the sea, right? That reminds us of Genesis one, the spirit over the waters, right? Ruach, a new beginning is coming wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid. Each one cried out to his God. So these are all Gentiles. So notice here, Jonah is not, I hate all foreigners. He's in a boat with a bunch of Gentiles. He just doesn't want anything to do with Assyria. And they began hurling cargo overboard to lighten it for them. But Jonah, whose name means what? Do You remember? Another symbolic word, dove. So here's a dove above the waters. What does that remind you of? The Spirit. It's another picture of baptism. And he'd gone down to the inner part of the ship, and he'd lain down where he was fast asleep. And so this boat is just being rocked. And Jonah is sleeping. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them... Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know that it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. The men don't want to do that. So they row hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So what do you see here? Remember, in in all of these sessions that we've gone before with the miracles, what do deep waters always represent? Death, judgment, whether it's creation, or Noah, or the Red Sea, or in this case, Jonah, or baptism. You go down and come up. You're raised to new life out of the waters. Always represents... Death And here you have the prophet of God, right? Who's come from his homeland, is supposed to be going to a distant land filled with sinful, awful people. And though he's rebellious, he knows what must be done. The man of God must be thrown into death for everyone else to have peace and life. And so in this picture, you get a little glimpse of the gospel, and so they take Jonah, and they throw him down into the sea, which is a picture of death, and he sinks down and then comes. So far, like, this is miraculous, but we can stomach it, right? But then something totally, totally wild happens. The Lord appointed a great fish. We don't know what kind of fish. A lot of people say a whale. It just says a sea creature. The Lord appointed a great sea creature to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. You know what Sheol means? The grave or hell. I cried, and you heard my voice. Jonah is putting, wanting us to understand that he's been cast down into the grave for three days, three nights. And if you come to this story and you say, oh, come on, how? And people try. People really do try. They'll try to say, well, there's some fish that have stomach chambers that are big enough and if oxygen went down the wrong pipe, then maybe Jonah could have, ha-. and, and no. And that we've talked about this before. When you try to explain this away with natural remedies, you're totally missing the point. This is absolutely impossible. No matter what sea creature that we know of, if it swallows somebody and goes down in the depths of the sea for three days and three nights, you're done. You're done. The stomach acids are going to kill you. There's no air down there. The pressures, all of it, you're done. And so this message is not meant to, hey, figure it out because this is all naturalistic and this should make sense to us. The point of this is it's utterly impossible. So you have a skeptic who lived in the 3rd century. He says, in the next place, what are we to believe concerning Jonah? This is somebody who'd gone from Christianity and rejected Christianity because he couldn't make sense of miracles. What is to be said of of him having been three days in a whale's belly, belly The thing is utterly improbable and incredible that a man swallowed with his clothes on, I don't know why that's important, should have existed inside the fish. If, however, the story is figurative, please explain. Why would God ordain this? He's not surprised by it. It's all Jonah's decision, but God, as a sovereign poet of all of history, has ordained this. Why? Why? He's showing us the picture of the man of God who's thrown into death, and he's going to go down into the grave for three days. And when he's in the belly and he's saying, okay, I, I will forgive, I'm going to go, I'm going to... Then the, the sea creature comes up and vomits him out on dry ground. And Jesus is going to take this. You know what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders around Jesus, seven hundred years after this event, they come around him, and Jesus is making all these claims, all these wild claims about "I, I, you know, I have the power to forgive, and he's making all these teachings that with authority, claiming that he has the authority of God, right? And they say, "What sign? What sign do you give us that we should pay attention to you? Who are you? Show us a miracle! Show us a miracle!" And so Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. I'm not going to sit around and do parlor tricks for you. I will let my sign of Jonah answer you. What is the sign of Jonah? It's the empty tomb. Jesus uses language for two things where he's talking about his resurrection. When he talks about his resurrection, he calls it the sign of Jonah. One of the most improbable, crazy miracles of the Old Testament is meant to be the crazy miracle of the Old Testament because here's the deal. We look at Jonah and go, man, I don't think, I don't think a, a living man could stay in a fish for three days and three nights and come out alive. And Jesus is saying, oh, you just wait. You think that's improbable. Wait until a dead man for three days comes out of a tomb alive. Which takes more faith. But it's the same God who absolutely controls life and death. And he uses a second metaphor that he'll say to the Jews when he's turning over temple tables and condemning the temple practices, the Jews come to him and say, Why? who gave you the authority to make judgments on the temple? By what sign, do you sh- what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What does he mean by that? His body, right? I mean, it, he goes on to say that. In three days I'm going to be raised from the dead. And so those are the two main metaphors that come regarding resurrection. And this is cool. This is just a side note. People when they saw him raised, they grabbed hold of that sign of Jonah. That was precious to the early church. You know the earliest symbols of Christianity were not the cross. You know what it was? The fish, the ichthus. So you find these all over the place. First century, I'll give you an example. They found an a tomb where they found ossuary boxes and you really have to kind of look at it cuz the picture's not all that great. But this was discovered in Jerusalem, and it's in a tomb that we know existed before 70 AD because there's a destruction layer on top of it from when Jerusalem was destroyed. So it had to have been in there before the destruction layer in 70 AD happened. But you know what's on the side of the tomb? It says, Divine Yahweh. That's what they're calling Jesus. Divine Yahweh, raise up, raise up. That's on the side of their burial box. A second ossuary features this image of a fish with a human figure in its mouth. Can you see that? The head is popping out of the fish's mouth. They had this hope for the sign of Jonah. Can everybody see that? Can you make that out? So here you have this fish, the sign of Jonah. And before 70 AD, this is wildly popular. You go to Ephesus and you see things like this all over the place that you still see inside the the fishes on the back of cars and the reason why this is up, these are, these are Greek letters that literally spell out the word ichthus, which is, ichthus is the, the word fish. But if you look at the Greek letters, they had this because they had to do this in secret because the church was persecuted. If you wanted to see if somebody else was a Christian, rather than saying, hey, I'm a Christian, good to meet you, and then you get arrested and thrown into a coliseum, what they would do is come up and draw an ark in the sand. And if the other person was a Christian, they would complete the ark the other way to make the ichthus in the sand. Everybody suddenly starts going bananas that somebody's defeated death, and these ossuaries are being marked with sign of faith in Christ. So then we get to one of the miracles that's really just kind of bizarre. It's the story of the fish and the coin in its mouth. Are you familiar with this miracle? Here's the way the story goes. Let's read it together. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee... Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. So in other words, the passage is setting up, this is resurrection-themed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, they're trying to catch him so they can try him and put him in trouble. Does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter says, yeah, he does. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, and get this, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Well, when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So a shekel takes care of the four drachma tax. It's the equivalent. So what in the world? Like, you hear that and you go, that sounds really petty. Like, that sounds like a selfish miracle to me. It's like, Jesus, go get a job. Like, earn your own money. Right? That's not what he's getting after here. There's this, What? Uh, help me remember, you know what the, the drachma tax was for? It tells you in, in, a, in the passage, it's the temple tax. This is is what you had to pay for the temple to be constructed, reconstructed, always be maintained, kept up. It's building the temple, right? What are the two promises of Jesus regarding resurrection, the two signs? Tear down this temple, and I will build it in three days. What's the other one? Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be buried in the earth for three days before he comes forth with new life, right? What do you see in this miracle? First off, you see unbelievable control of nature. So is, is this God ex nihilo? He just creates a coin and a fish? Or did, did he know that some guy like, oh, I lost my, my coin and some fish swallows it up, and he knows that the first one that bites this line is going to be that fish with the coin in its mouth, or does he just say, coin in the mouth? Like, stunning miracle, right? Stunning control over nature to bring that fish, to bite that hook, and everything's in place. But that's, that's, that shows control over nature and some amazing things, but that's not the message of the miracle. Remember, he asked Simon, Simon, who pays? Who's going to pay for the temple to be rebuilt? Who's, who are the temples, by the way? That's Jesus' ultimate aim. And so what picture does he put together? Here comes a fish that's going to spit up. What are you hear in that? Here's Jonah. What is he spitting up? The payment for the construction of the temple. So hold on a minute. let me, let me back up. So the fish comes, spits up. So there's resurrection. That will be the payment for the temples. That's what will go to construct all the temples. And so here's the deal. When he's having this conversation with Peter ahead of time, and he says, who pays? Do the sons pay? Peter says, of course not. And here you have Jesus in the flesh, the the son of the father, the great gift to humanity who says, you're right. My sons, my daughters are not going to pay. I will pay. I'm the one who's going to be thrown overboard. I'm the one who's going to be cast down into the grave for three days and three nights. I'm the one who's going to pay for you all to be constructed as perfect temples. That's beautiful. I've always read that story and gone, what in the world is that about? And he's talking about resurrection. He's combining all these emblems. And I'm sure Peter's like, cool, the coin, you know, probably until later where he thought, oh my goodness, this, this is pretty stunning. And so I want to stop and I want to talk about the Lord's passion for his temple. Does anybody in here know who is the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus, right? So, and when you're reading the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord appears in the burning bush. That is Jesus before he has human figure. The angel of the Lord does all these incredible things, wrestles with Jacob. That's Jesus before he has flesh. And there's reasons for that that make it where it has to be Jesus. So anyway, there's this really cool story. It's an incredible miracle. It's one of the more stunning miracles to believe. But man, you look at it and you go, man, our God is really powerful. Remember those Assyrians? We're not a fan of the Assyrians, if they're not redeemed anyway, because they're nasty. And so there's this really, really famous story after Jonah, the Assyrians come through, they conquer, they just go through, they conquer city after city after city after city on their way to Jerusalem. They conquer every major empire of the region. They take down the Elamites, they take down old Babylon, they take down the land controlled by the Hittites, they take down the Syrians, they take down ancient Egypt, everything falls to the Assyrians. And now they're coming up against Jerusalem, where the temple is. And thankfully, they've got a a man in, in the throne who loves God. His name is Hezekiah. And so here comes the Assyrian army with hundreds of thousands of troops. Nothing is stopping them, nothing the mightiest empires and there were far greater ones at this time than Israel and, and by the way all of Israel and most of Judah had already fallen and only Jerusalem is left they don't stand a chance and so he hears that the king Sennacherib of the Assyrians is coming to Jerusalem and Hezekiahs flipping out like and he says take all the treasury out of the temple and send it to him try to bribe peace send it to him give him all the silver all the gold And it comes and Sennacherib says, thank you very much, still coming. And he's coming, and he's coming, and Hezekiah's like, I'm out of options, I don't know what to do. And he starts praying desperately, and he lives with Isaiah. Not in the same house, or you know what I mean, like same time period. And Isaiah the prophet, they're praying, God deliver us, God deliver us. And Isaiah goes before the Lord, and the Lord gives Isaiah a word And it's really pretty awesome. Let's read the story. Therefore, thus, this is Isaiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria. Think how bold and crazy this would be. He shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord. Say what? What? Like, you don't know what we're up against, God. For I will defend this city to save it, for my own sake, and for the sake of my servant David. Wild claim, here comes. And that night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. You buy that? It's pretty wild. For a long time, like this is one of those stories where when you read it, you were like, okay, this is is a biblical claim. We recently found what's called Sennacherib's prism. And it looks like this. It's this stone thing, and he writes an unbelievably small text all around the stone and in the prism, Sennacherib records the whole battles, all the battles that he's done, what he's done to Egypt, what he's done to everybody else. It says, he records his military conquests. He boasts of conquering 46 walled cities in Israel, plundering each city's wealth, leading 200,156 people into captivity, capturing countless multitude of horses and mules and asses and camels, oxen, and sheep. And he mocked Hezekiah for being shut up in Jerusalem, his capital city, like a bird in a cage. Let me tell you, he's captured 46 walled cities. But all he can say about Jerusalem is, Hezekiah wouldn't come out and fight. And we left. He doesn't conquer it. You look at the ancient map of the Assyrian Empire. This is from a textbook that's not a Bible-based Christian textbook. And you notice the extent of the Assyrian Empire in 700 BC. And it's all yellow. He conquered everything in that region of the world. Everything except that little orange circle. He never got Judea, ever. He couldn't conquer it. That doesn't make any sense at all, unless God stood up for his people, and the angel of the Lord went out and fought on behalf of his people, right? There's a, there's a famous Babylonian historian whose name is, um, I have to look, Barossus Chaldeus. He's that famous, and he, he's from the third century B.C., He's writing 300 years before Jesus, and he gives this account of that. God sent, so here comes Sennacherib, and Barossus claims that a divine plague broke out in the Assyrian camp, and it says, God sent a pestilential distemper upon Sennacherib's army on the very first night. How long did it take? One night. On the very first night that they show up to go up against Jerusalem, and what number does he give? One hundred fourscore and five thousand. If you know, score is twenty, right? So, one hundred eighty-five thousand. Same number the Bible gives. With their captains and generals were destroyed, and being in great fear for his whole army, he fled with the rest of his forces to his own kingdom and to the city of Nineveh. And that should just make you like, that's our God. Like, that's our God who fiercely defends us. And when his people are at risk, who are standing in the right cause and are aligned with him, that's, and I mean, he may not always save us from the Assyrians, to be honest, right? But that's his heart. He will ultimately save us, always. Just maybe not from a circumstance. Martin Luther, how many of you, mighty fortress is our God? A mighty fortress is our God. Well, his favorite psalm, was Psalm 46. And almost all commentators that write about Psalm 46, John Calvin, Wearsby, all the commentators say that Psalm 46 was written after this battle. They came together and just meditated on how wonderful God was, how he defended his power. And they wrote the Psalm, take five minutes imagining that you were walled up in that city, that the angel of the Lord went out on your behalf, and all that desperation you, you know parts of this psalm like be still and that's this psalm he fights all we have to do is be still
0: and know that he's god thanks sam and thank you friends for listening to our podcast if you liked what you heard please give us a good rating that will help others find the podcast also